Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour, why greening D.C. takes more than just a green thumb. Everyone wants trees in the city, but the reality is that if you put the tree in the ground as a stranger without all the other human qualities of like understanding, communication and whatnot, then it will probably not survive. But first, we'll head to Metro Center in downtown D.C. to spend time with a transportation expert. Hey. Hi, how are you? One whose love for all things go started with a job at his dad's bicycle shop at the tender age of five. 39 years later, Gabe Klein has been responsible for expanding Zipcar's local fleet from 28 vehicles to 500, for starting the nation's first all-natural electric-powered food truck company, and for launching Capital Bike Share, the first large-scale bike share system in the United States. And he achieved all of that and so much more in fewer than 10 years. I was sort of shaking up the status quo. I was a rabble-rouser, I think in a good way, always trying to make D.C. a shining example of what a city could be. Gabe headed D.C.'s Department of Transportation during the Adrian Fenty administration. He then ran Chicago's Department of Transportation. Under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, Gabe designed and built the city's Riverwalk. He created 100 miles of bike lanes, and he launched Chicago's wildly successful bike share program, Divi. But now Gabe is back in the nation's capital, and he has a new book. It's called Startup City, Inspiring Private and Public Entrepreneurship, Getting Projects Done, and having fun. He says he was inspired to write it after he left Chicago, began giving talks around the country, and noticed an interesting pattern emerge. I kept getting the same questions over and over, from Nashville to Charleston to LA. You know, it's like, how do you get so much done so quickly in a city, particularly with the big bureaucracy? You know, how do you fund some of these projects? Like 100 miles of bike lanes, you know, that had no funding, but the mayor just says, go do this. Or Capital Bike Share, which only cost $1.2 million initially from the city and is arguably, you know, one of the most visible, useful forms of, you know, sort of inter-neighborhood transportation in D.C. Or like, how do you align stakeholders behind a project? The public, people who don't agree with you, the people around the mayor, the council members. So I basically modeled the book around what people were telling me they wanted to know. So your book consists of of all these lessons for people hoping to improve the world some way, improve the way we live in cities, get stuff done. And the very first lesson you mention is don't be afraid to screw up and learn. Can you give an example of how you learned that particular lesson here in Washington? You know, there are a lot of examples. I mean, I screw up all the time. Before I I give you an example, though, I'll say that I think we have a cultural problem particularly in government, but also in in corporate America around experimentation and the ability to try things and fail. And so I think what I learned in general, broadly speaking, was if you set the expectation for the public or the council members that, hey, we're going to try something, it may not work, but we're going to give it a shot and we're going to learn from it. And then we're going to make a better decision, particularly with the taxpayer dollars, so that we'll actually have something for the long term that people like like Capital Bike Share, or like our parking system here in D.C. Now, with the parking meters, for instance, we said, well, we're going to have the private sector come to the table because our parking system was a disaster. And as a consumer of it, I knew that, you know, the single-space meters were always jammed, they didn't work, and then you come back from the store and you got a ticket, like constantly. So I knew that if we made the system work, people were willing to pay more. And we tested you know, eight different systems and all these configurations of sensors and pay-by-phone systems and different parking meters. And I'll tell you that the original meter that we were planning on going with, when we put it into the street, 
I watched seven people in the rain trying to use it and they couldn't use it because they couldn't figure it out. That's why you got to put stuff in people's hands and let them try it. So we learned from that and what we ended up with was a configuration and parking that's probably the best in the United States and has now been copied all over uh, America, which is you know, multi-space meters on some streets, like new streets that you're building, single space meters, these IPS meters we have, they're solar, digital, they're low cost, they talk to each other. And then a pay-by-phone system that's layered on top that communicates with the other meters. And you know, there's a 45 cent transaction fee every time you use pay-by-phone. And we have the highest penetration in the world for pay-by-phone use. Almost 60% of transactions for parking in Washington, D.C. are pay-by-phone. And you know what? I've never heard a complaint about the 45 cent transaction fee, which by the way is pretty high. But the fact is people aren't getting tickets like they used to. And so they're more than happy to pay that for a system that works. And the meter rates have gone up, which means we're getting better turnover. The uh, businesses are happier. So, you know, there's a lesson there in like setting out to try to make mistakes, to test things. You say, okay, we're gonna try to set this up to break it and we're gonna see what works best. And then you do a procurement for something like a parking system and you're making a much more educated decision with the taxpayer dollars. You're giving people something they want. A big emphasis in the book is the partnership that you want to promote between public and private. Capital yeah. Bike Share is a shining example. To borrow a phrase from your book, how do you make sure that neither side, the public nor the private, is jockeying to control the entire process? This is an ongoing tension, and Capital Bike Share is a public-private partnership. Divi is a public-private partnership. The private sector operates this service. Advertisers are funding it. Citizens are riding it and paying to use it. The government is ultimately administrating it. And, you know, one of the things that we thought was so cool when we did our first public meetings and we're launching Capital Bike Share is people came to the meetings and they were like, wait, DDOT runs this? What? Because the branding was tight, the website was good, it looked just like Zipcar, you know, it was like easy to use. They're like, this can't be the government. And that's when we knew we had succeeded before it was even launching because you shouldn't be able to tell if it's a government or a private sector service. And if you engage properly and if you have a good relationship between the government and the private sector, there's not this competition. You're not writing a contract to try to screw the other side out of as much money as possible. You know, if it's a, a true partnership and your incentives are aligned, meaning like the more you market the system, the more we market the system, the more successful it is, the more we both make money. It's amazing how these things just work out. And I think one of the lessons there is actually Metro should be following the capital bike share strategy. They don't need to be operating buses. They don't need to be operating trains. Because they've gotten so knee deep in operating a system and they're focused on like negotiating labor contracts, literally putting people in trains and, and driving them, they've lost focus on the customer. And the irony is in Europe, which is much more, let's say lefty than we are here, the private sector operates almost all of their transit service, but to a very high service level dictated by the government. The government is more of a coordinating entity. They're a management entity. So we've sort of lost our way here, and I'm trying to get people to look at some of these examples. You know, like five years ago, people would have laughed if you had said you should run Metro like a bike share system. I think now people wouldn't laugh anymore. That was former DDOT head Gabe Klein. His book, Startup City, comes out this month. We asked Gabe if you could name five things you'd love to see Washington, D.C. do with 
cost, hypothetically being no concern, what would those five things be? Well, his answers might surprise you. You can read all about it on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay on the transit beat for this next story to talk about Metro. These days, if you check out social media on any weekday morning, you'll see countless Metro commuters venting. Take this tweet. Blue line offloaded at Metro Center. No explanation. Or this one. Damn you, red line. A new group is trying to channel all that anger and angst into constructive action. It's called the WMATA Riders Union, with WMATA, of course, standing for the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. The group formed on Twitter and now boasts close to 1,500 card-carrying members. But as we hear from transportation reporter Martin DeCaro, the work of transit advocacy is no easy ride. Step back, doors closing. Rush hour makes Tim Kaiser feel like a football. I tend to be pushed around, shoved around, kicked around. (laughs) When trains are late, platforms are packed, and the announcements are indecipherable garble. It's tough for anyone. Kaiser is blind. When it's you're waiting for an extra five, ten minutes on the platform, and it's so crowded, I I can't even walk on the platforms. For the first time, Metro is officially admitting lousy service is affecting ridership. So what to do about it? How about join a union? Uh, It depends. Kaiser never heard of the WMATA Riders Union, but he might be interested in joining. You know, if there's an actual issue that needs to be addressed. Like a fair hike? Something like that would work, yeah. Or the fact that there's not enough trains running, so they cram us all on on the trains like sardines. So if it's a focused issue that we can sort of rally around, Yeah, I definitely would do it. We already have a list of volunteers ready and willing to go. Ashley Robbins is the chair of the WMATA Riders Union. We've had people volunteer as lawyers. We've had lobbyists volunteer. We have students volunteering. So they're just getting started. Right now, the group has a Twitter account and some membership cards, but its founders have a real passion for fixing the D.C. region's transit system. My family helped build Metro. My grandfather actually broke his neck in the accident that took place at the Smithsonian Station when it was being built. So my whole family is from here, but my parents grew up here. And there's an investment in the system that I feel personally that really wanting to see the system be what it should be. Before we learn just how the Riders Union plans to do that, let's leave Roslyn Station for a moment and travel to New York City, where in 1979 some angry subway riders formed the Strap Hangers campaign. Gene Rushenoff founded the group. He remembers the challenge of taking on a dysfunctional transit system. He says the D.C. group is tilling fertile soil. It's great that they're trying to get their act together and trying to deal with these problems. It's a sign that the system is troubled and that the riders know it. That's a big step forward, knowing you have a problem and wanting to do something about it. Doing something about it. That's harder than just complaining about it on Twitter. And Rushinoff says without at least some full-time staff and funding, the WMATA Riders Union may not survive. If you're a volunteer, you got your family, your work, your community, and all all these pulls on your time and attention. 
this is one of those things that's easier said than dealt with. If you need a full-time staff person, you need to pay them. And uh, we've been able to raise money over a 35-year period. The Strap Hangers campaign also established its credibility with the public, but it took real work. We did a, a report on the quality of the 20 subway lines that served the city, and it was a bear. We had to put people on, on stations around the city based on a random table of numbers. Some people were at their station at midnight. The report covered everything. Subway cars, stations, doors, lighting, you name it. Black marks everywhere. Then we did the same report a year later. It made the front page of the New York Times, and it said that things had gotten worse, and that mirrored feelings of the public. Doing the reports helped get us on the map. The WMATA Riders Union already has gotten its fair share of press without doing all that legwork, thanks to social media. Right after the group created a Twitter account, stories started appearing in the news. But Ashley Robbins says she's working to establish the group as a nonprofit and will seek funding to pay staff. I have some background in creating advocacy organizations and running advocacy organizations. And so it's really about helping get the organization on its feet. Her colleague Graham Jenkins came to the Riders Union as a frustrated commuter who's doing his homework on Metro's many problems. There have been attempts at this kind of thing in the past, but over the last year, it's been the nadir of service for Metro. Jenkins says the group's in touch with some Metro board members, but they haven't met yet with Metro's top management. They're waiting for a new general manager to be hired at Metro. I asked him if we can expect hundreds of commuters to show up at Metro's next public meeting. We have the bodies to do sort of mass events like that, but we also have uh, a lot of people who we can use their, their skills in other ways to go to the board directly and try and affect change from within. The WMATA Riders Union believes it can quickly gain some traction by addressing the problems that confront riders each and every day, like poor service or lack of refunds. Robin says Metro has long-term needs, but commuters are thinking about their next train ride. There's so many needs right now, but yes, the immediate need of getting through rush hour and having a day when five out of the six lines don't melt down is all that we're really concerned about. They want their group to be seen as constructive, not confrontational, smart, not emotional. As unhappy as they may be, they're actually rooting for Metro. They use it, need it, and would like one day to believe in it again. I'm Martin DeCaro. Time for a break, but when we get back, we'll hear from the man succeeding Arne Duncan as the U.S. Secretary of Education. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. One of the biggest controversies in D.C. right now is whether to approve the merger between Pepco, the district's homegrown power company, and Exelon, the Chicago-based energy giant. What's one of the things that keeps the city healthy and growing? Reliable electricity. Environmentalists and consumer advocates have been at odds with local business leaders on the issue, but some unexpected voices have emerged in the debate. Take, for example, this radio ad featuring a pastor from a church in southeast Washington. Nonprofits and ministers like me are supporting the Pepco Holdings Exelon merger. If it doesn't happen, we'd lose too much. Paid for by Exelon Corporation. In addition to appearing in advertisements like this one, local nonprofits, from homeless shelters to health clinics, have been lobbying regulators directly. Nearly 30 such groups have written in supporting the deal. 
So why are churches and nonprofits getting mixed up in this regulatory fight? The short answer, money. As Patrick Madden tells us, Pepco gives out millions of dollars a year in charitable donations. Like so many of the charities that receive money from Pepco, Covenant House Washington does critical life-saving work that helps underserved communities. Here at the group's headquarters in southeast Washington, that work is on display. So this is a mural of success that young people did in one of our projects. President Mady Henderson is taking me on a tour. On her left, a gorgeous wall-length mural. On her right, tiny portraits of dozens of young adults who have earned GEDs through Covenant House. So what you see here is about half of the young people that got their GED, and each of them, of course, has an incredible story. Each year, Covenant House helps disconnected and homeless youth in D.C. with housing, education, and job training. The group has helped support over 35,000 young people over the years, and it's made possible with help from private donations. It does take resources to, to do those services, but it is a great reward. Pepco gives out roughly $2 million each year to local charities, including Covenant House. That money could dry up if the deal falls through, according to the power company. And so, like many charities that receive funding from Pepco, Covenant House has publicly endorsed the deal and even sent a letter to the Public Service Commission urging regulators to approve the merger. We're supportive of, of this merger because we see the advantages that it can do in this community when you have strong business that actually supports these issues. And so the bottom line is... You don't see a problem with nonprofits like yourself who are, you know, receiving money from Pepco and perhaps in the future from Exelon from sending a letter to a regulatory body to say, you know, this deal should go forward. I, I don't. I think that uh, if you get to do it in earnestness and you do it with a level of integrity, um, this is not about uh, quid pro quo in any respect. Covenant House Washington is hardly alone. More than two dozen charities sent letters to regulators urging them to approve the deal. Nearly all receive some form of funding from Pepco. Many have a Pepco executive on their board of directors. But practically none of these groups, to be frank, are experts in regulatory issues involving power companies. That bothered Mark Roseman, a professor emeritus at Union University and a longtime commentator on nonprofit issues. I have a, a great deal of empathy for anyone in the charitable world who has to raise money. It's not fundraising money. He ended up writing a blistering article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy about this issue. The public has learned to trust nonprofits for the work they do, most of them uh, superb work in realizing their mission. Uh, what is of concern is when an organization goes outside those boundaries, ventures into areas in which it has no expertise. In other words, when nonprofit organization seems to be selling its name and supporting an initiative about which it really knows very little. The controversial Pepco Exelon merger has been a flashpoint in D.C. The business community is largely backing the merger because of promises of better service and more jobs. Environmental groups like the Sierra Club, meanwhile, are panning the deal. They say it'll move the city away from its renewable energy goals. But some environmental nonprofits that receive Pepco funds wrote letters supporting the merger. One of them is the Arbor Day Foundation, a well-known group that plants trees. Spokesman Danny Cohn. This letter was not coerced. It was not 
a trade. It was merely a a sign of support for a company that believes in planting trees. Cohn says the Arbor Day Foundation has received roughly half a million dollars from Pepco to help plant trees for customers. The initiative has helped plant more than 30,000 trees since 2011. We look at the amount of people that will be affected by the merger and the ability to plant more trees. We were not at all concerned about the loss of this partnership. Both Pepco and Exelon say they're proud of the company's long history of charitable giving. But Pepco says in a statement that if the merger fails, it could be forced to re-examine how much money it can donate each year. But Alan Dye, an attorney who advises nonprofits at Webster, Chamberlain & Bean, says organizations need to be careful. If a charity engages in an activity whose purpose is to benefit private parties, and if that activity is substantial, then the charity will lose its tax-exempt status. But Dye says writing a letter to regulators is probably not going to get a nonprofit in trouble. It's not likely substantial activity. But he says actions like this could damage a group's reputation. Basically selling your tax-exempt status to make sure you have a continuing stream of income, it does raise sort of credibility issues. Back at the Covenant House, Mady Henson says the merger is more than a regulatory issue. It's also about jobs and investing in the future of the city. I do think that nonprofits, we are important partners in this space. Uh, And so nonprofits should be weighing in on those things that can impact the work and impact the issues. Uh, And this is one of those. I tried to contact nearly every nonprofit that sent a letter to regulators. Not a single one said they felt pressured to write a letter to the commission or believed it was a quid pro quo for charitable donations. But many wouldn't go on the record to say why they supported the merger. Some said it was too sensitive an issue. And something surprising happened when I started calling around. Three of the groups told me that, despite their initial support, they no longer back the Pepco Exelon merger. As one nonprofit president said, we're in a catch-22. We don't want to distance our friends. This is just territory that we're not experts in. But the groups wouldn't go on the record for fear of jeopardizing their relationship with the power companies. I'm Patrick Madden. Yeah! Education Secretary Arnie Duncan announced earlier this month that he's stepping down after seven years with the Obama administration. Duncan is one of the longest-serving education secretaries in U.S. history. The lanky, one-time Australian pro basketball player who's shot his share of hoops with President Obama is also a familiar face for many parents in Arlington, where his two children attend public schools. Duncan's replacement will be Undersecretary of Education John King. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza met King just a week before the announcement. She was hosting a discussion about ways to get more students to graduate college. And Kavitha joins me now to talk about King and his ideas about college completion. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. What is John King like? I I understand he has a pretty compelling personal story in terms of how public education changed his life. Well, I'll give you the abridged version. He's from New York. Both his parents were public school educators, and they died before he was 12 years old. He says school was a sanctuary for him, and he really credits his teachers for what he calls saving his life. Um, He got into a prestigious private school, but then he got booted out. Um, He went on to Harvard and volunteered at an after-school program where he got interested in education. 
He became a social studies teacher and co-founded a charter school while he was still at Yale Law School. Before he came to work for the Obama administration, he was the New York State Education Commissioner. And I understand he was quite controversial in New York, kind of like the New York version of Michelle Rhee, the former chancellor of D.C. schools. Mm -hmm. He generated controversy because he led the effort to transition to the Common Core state standards and a new teacher evaluation system, which tied teacher evaluations to student test scores. Now, talking about college completion and getting more young people to that point, you and King talked quite a bit about that. What are his views on the subject? Some colleges and nonprofits in the Washington metro region are already doing this, so helping students make that adjustment to college easier. So summer school programs for low-income first-generation students so they can get acclimated to college before school begins, counseling programs to help make the transition easier, and introducing students with similar backgrounds to each other so they know they're not alone. They're kind of all in this together. Let's hear what he had to say. There's a writer, Claude Steele, who writes about the idea that students who are first-generation college students often interpret difficulty as meaning, I don't belong here, right? As a sense, oh, I did poorly on this paper, I must not be college material. Or I'm struggling in this math class, I must be the only one. And part of what colleges need to do is help those students see college is difficult, the transition is difficult, you're not alone, here are supports, and give students that sense, oh, people are going to help me to succeed here. One of the things he talked about was changing the incentives for higher education, shifting the focus to completion. It sounds like King is talking about changing the metric we use to rate how colleges are doing, which requires a shift in in people's attitudes and values. Did you talk about ways to achieve that shift? Uh Uh-huh. So one way is to have a common method to evaluate colleges and have that information be public. So, for example, you can look up the website College Results Online and not look at just the overall graduation rate, but also the graduation rate by race and income. The federal government also has its own version of the college scorecard, and it's called scorecard.ed.gov. King said they've launched a first-in-the-world grant that colleges can apply for. It's a reference to the president's goal of making the U.S. once again have the highest college graduation rate. And the idea is for colleges and universities to invest in getting students to actually graduate. And say, for example, a college has this great, innovative program to actually use the money to evaluate it and then see if it can be scaled up across the country. All right. So you've given us a good idea of what universities can do. But talking about John King, when he was a student, he found ways to succeed despite every challenge he faced. So what does he have to say about what college kids can actually do? A lot. They can find students who are in similar situations so they don't feel alone. They can reach out and ask for help, whether it's student support services or college professors. They can join study groups and um, college activities. He also said these first-generation low-income students can be great advocates and ask questions. One thing we're seeing across the country that I think is very powerful is first-generation college students as activists on campus asking their university administration, their university board of trustees, what percentage of our students are Pell eligible? Are they graduating in the same numbers? 
Is the university providing support services? Are they helping students get internships? Are they doing the things necessary to ensure student success? And it's very powerful, I think, for faculties and for university administrators when they see students on campus saying, here are the things we need. Here are the things that you need to do to honor your commitment to socioeconomic diversity. That was John King, who takes over as U.S. Education Secretary in January. You can hear his full conversation with Kavitha Cardoza on our website, metroconnection.org. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In a minute... She's Insta-famous. We'll meet lovely Mimi, the Maryland nail technician who's become an internet sensation. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's been six years since Congress responded to the Great Recession with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, a nearly $800 billion stimulus package to kickstart temporary relief programs and invest in infrastructure, education, health, and renewable energy. And in 2011, two years after the stimulus began, President Barack Obama was touting its success. I am absolutely convinced, and the vast majority of uh, economists are convinced, that The steps we took in the Recovery Act saved millions of people their jobs or created a whole bunch of jobs. The goal was to save or create about four million jobs. Many experts say we came close. But local filmmaker Lance Kramer, a fourth-generation Washingtonian, says it isn't quite that simple. And he and his brother, Brandon, hope to communicate that with their first feature-length documentary. It was kind of curious to us that there wasn't great understanding or awareness about what this kind of large, expansive public policy was actually doing, you know, on the ground in people's lives. Like when the decisions in our hometown in Capitol Hill were made, and then they transferred from Capitol Hill down to a federal agency, and from a federal agency down to a city agency, from a city agency down to a nonprofit organization, from a nonprofit organization down into a resident in Ward 8's pocket. The film, City of Trees, shows what happens when, in 2010, the D.C. nonprofit Washington Parks and People gets a stimulus grant to train unemployed Washingtonians to plant trees in blighted parks. The grant stipulates that the nonprofit has just two years to create this green job training program, the D.C. Green Corps. 3996504. This is Tammy Wright from Washington Parks and People. You know why I'm calling you? Well, you know it's not a job, right? What is it, adventure? <laughs> it's a training program, a paid training program. A training program? Right, the Green Corps. The Green Corps consists of low-income Washingtonians, Absolutely. returning citizens, basically, as Washington Parks and People President Steve Coleman puts it in this scene, underprivileged individuals who've been struggling to find work. We could make our job easier. We could say we're looking for people with the most green experience, and we're looking for people who have the least challenges to employment. That would be like we're hiring. We're doing the opposite of what you would do in hiring. But we're looking for people where there's tremendous potential. 
I recently visited filmmakers Lance and Brandon Kramer at the headquarters of their production company, Meridian Hill Pictures, right alongside Meridian Hill Park inside the Josephine Butler Parks Center. Washington Parks and People actually operates that historic building. And as Brandon explains, sharing the same roof is what led to the idea for City of Trees. We discovered that Washington Parks and People were running this this job training program, and we came to them with the idea of training a cohort of their trainees in making their own documentary films about stories that were important to them. So for the very first cohort of the DC Green Corps, right after they started the program, we actually came in as teaching artists, as facilitators, Lance and I, and we did a three-month residency with 40 trainees in the DC Green Corps. Um, using flip cams, and the trainees made four short documentaries um, through the three-month period. And that was really our opportunity both to experiment with an approach to participatory filmmaking and, and these, these trainings, and then also it gave us an opportunity to learn how incredible this story was and how incredible the people's lives were. Charles Holcomb, one of the lead uh, participants in the film, we met him through that training, and after going through that residency, we basically like approached the organization, Washington Parks and People, and the different people that were trainees in the program with the idea of um, continuing to follow that story ourselves and following the program for the next you know, several years and really trying to tell a story that was from their point of view. Charles is one of the first characters we meet, and he's, I think he's 24 years old when the film starts. He's expecting his first child, and he says something to the effect of, until I found the Green Corps, I never knew how much I had to live for. Never knew, till I I really got into a job where I seen they care so much about the earth. Like, if they care so much about the earth, I don't care about myself just as much as they care about planting a tree. Um, can you tell us more of Charles' story? You know, Charles, I, I'm going to take this for Brandon. What Charles was going through, the kind of combination of his hopes for his future and also the roadblocks that were in front of him were profound. The sky was the limit in terms of what Charles thought you know, was possible in his career. And you could say that in a lot of respects, the roadblocks were just as great He was trying to make a very profound change in his life, having had deep associations with people and also like communities that he really wanted to distance himself from and just faced a ton of struggle, I think, um, and found that like this opportunity kind of came at just the right time. But of course, you know, as you kind of see in the film that came at the right time, but it wasn't for forever. Well, you really do take us inside Charles' life. I mean, we are inside his apartment quite a bit. He takes us on a tour before his daughter is born and shows us the preparations he's made, the, the socks he's bought for her, the, the car seat, the baby stroller. It might not even make no sense, but we doing it because we never had it. I'm saying little sunglasses, got her little corner decorated, her piggy bank, already saving up for college, you know. There are some really personal, intimate things he says as well. Um, we see him reading letters from his brother in prison. He just wrote like a little poem. Last night he couldn't help but cry. Not to give too much away, but when things start to maybe go south with the program because funding is running out, we see him on this job search. He goes to place after place after place trying to find a job. So they're not even hiring. That's what it is. A lot of people you got to keep, just got to keep trying. 
and clearly there there had to have been a lot of trust there for you to get that and show that to viewers. Yeah, I think that trust was there. Um, it was hard though. You know, it was hard for him, and it was I mean, definitely hard for me to to sort of have those conversations, and hard for everyone in the film to really open up um, these really really vulnerable spaces in their lives. Well, one of my one of my favorite things said in the film is a participant in the film we haven't talked about James. He becomes the community outreach coordinator for the Green Corps, and at one point he's riding in a car and he says, "Life has two roads. You can take the hard, constructive road, or you can take the easy, destructive road." I've actually never thought about that line in the film related to our experiences, but I think what James talks about there actually is like directly applicable to storytelling and of, of documentary. And I think there are a lot of examples out there of easy, destructive storytelling. Um, when I show up with a camera, you know, in Oxen Run Park, there is an expectation that I am with the nightly news and that something bad has happened in that community. And that's why I'm there to capture it. And the kind of storytelling that we're interested in advancing is a very thoughtful process of asking questions. That has been the guiding principle throughout this entire process, which is why there's 250 hours of footage for a 76-minute film. It's why it took two and a half years to film it and two years to edit it, because you're going down a lot of roads that are not the film, but are essential to get to the place that is the road that is the finished film. That was Brandon and Lance Kramer of Meridian Hill Pictures. Their new documentary, City of Trees, premieres this month at the American Conservation Film Festival in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. You can see images from the film and watch the trailer on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay in the world of the silver screen for our next story. Later this month, audiences across the region will be able to catch nearly 30 movies from around the world at the Greater Washington Immigration Film Festival. These documentaries, features, and shorts shine a spotlight on why people choose to migrate, the dangers they face during their journeys, and the challenges they confront once they arrive. Armando Trull brings us a sneak peek at the lineup for the festival, now in its second year. We are the youth of immigrant communities. We are the youth of immigrant communities. And we are here to say. And we are here to say. Enough. You're listening to excerpts from a movie called Dream, an American Story. It chronicles the political movement of young immigrants brought to this country illegally by their parents, youth known as dreamers. The movement is growing every single day. And it's just not me. It's not two people fighting. It's thousands of students nationwide fighting for this. The film documents how after years of protests, dreamers were able to win temporary legal status through President Obama's executive action. Aldo Bello is the movie's director and producer. I was thinking about the Hispanic community and I wanted to do something that would reflect uh, what was happening in, with the Hispanic community in this country. Bello owns an Alexandria, Virginia film production company. He began working on the film in 2009. He follows the ups and downs in the life of Juan Gomez, a Colombian dreamer whose parents were deported 
after their asylum application was denied. My mom comes in crying. She told us they were not going to reopen their case, so they'd be leaving in six days. My parents are gone, but it's time to face the fact and just go on ahead with your life because there's no turning back to it right now. It really caught my attention that the way that Juan Gomez was almost deported, uh, but then he ended up being uh, a student at Georgetown University and representing quintessentially what these, the, these dreamers are all about. Gomez graduated magna cum laude from Georgetown and landed a Wall Street job, but his temporary legal immigration status ended, and Gomez would ultimately be deported from the country he grew up in. Gomez now works as a financial analyst for a brokerage company in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He's been given a temporary visa to return to America for the film's premiere. The filmmaker, born in the United States of Chilean parents, bonded with Gomez. He wasn't born in the United States, but yet our lives could have, could have been switched. And it was only because of the immigration status that his life has been so challenging, and yet he has done so well for himself. The Greater Washington Immigration Film Festival includes more than two dozen movies that will be screened in venues across the region. Patty Apsher, co-founder of the festival. All of us in this area, in our daily lives, are constantly coming into contact with immigrants. Some of our parents are in Somalia where the war and so and sometimes I get scared. Lessons of Basketball and War is about the lives of Somali refugee girls in America who overcome the trauma of unspeakable violence and poverty through sports. Other movies are timely reminders of ongoing humanitarian crises around the world, says Absher. We're all very much aware of the European situation with the Syrians and the Afghanis and the Eritreans all coming up through Italy uh, and or through other countries and trying to get to Northern Europe. Lo sto con la sposa, which in Italian means I'm with a bride, is about the plight of five Palestinian and Syrian refugees who flee for their lives disguised as a wedding party. The movie is both humorous and shocking. As when a young refugee recalls being plucked from the sea and saved from drowning, only to be nearly suffocated by the corpses rescuers piled on top of him in the boat's hold. His face and eyes underscore the horror of his words. Lo Sto con la Esposa will have its world premiere at the Greater Immigration Film Festival. I'm Armando Trull. The Greater Washington Immigration Film Festival runs October 22nd through the 25th. WAMU is one of the media sponsors, and as part of the festival, Armando will be moderating a discussion after one of the screenings. You can learn more and see trailers for some of the films on our website, metroconnection.org. Make your way around Prince George's County, Maryland, and you'll find 663 hair and nail salons. But so far as we know, only one of them is run by an internet celebrity. Ellie Schweitzer takes us to a quiet strip mall where the nail designs are almost as colorful as the woman who creates them. 
At Lovely Nails in Capitol Heights, Maryland, full nail sets start at $20. Uh -huh. A basic mani-pedi, $30. Those are reasonable prices. So no eyelashes, right? But this nail salon is not the place to get something simple. No way. Lovely Nails is the domain of Lovely Mimi. No problem. I'll catch you when you get back from the wedding. She is a master of acrylic nails. Lovely Mimi can do almost anything. Crazy designs, gel, glitter, intricate rhinestones, whatever you want. When she finishes one of her masterpieces, she'll slather shiny oil on your fingers, then take a picture for Instagram. And once that happens, your fingers are basically famous. Because Mimi is famous. Or, in her words, Insta-famous! <laughs> that's Mimi in a recent Instagram video. She has two accounts, one for herself and one for her nail designs. Altogether, she has more than half a million followers. The nail technician is a social media celebrity. Every time people run into me, they're like, oh, Mimi, Mimi, do the voice, do the voice. I'd be like, but why? Why you want me to do the voice? In this video, lovely Mimi is doing what she calls the voice. It's her exaggerated impression of a Vietnamese person speaking English. Mimi, whose real name is Miha, was born in Vietnam and her family moved here when she was just three. Sitting in a nail salon she owns with her sister-in-law, Mimi says her Instagram videos aren't just for fun, they've been great for business. But the good thing about Instagram, it, it helps you network uh, with your business. Because if it was years ago, before we had any type of social media, I would have to sit here and wait for walk-ins and wait for the walk-ins to tell their friends and word of mouth in order to build business. But now that there is Instagram, people from all over the DMV is able to see and come. And Mimi says she gets why people love her videos. I say a lot of things that a lot of people think, but they never say. And then I do my voice, my accent. I'm pretty good at different impersonations. You know, what other impersonations <clears throat> do you do? I do like my Asian voice, nail salon lady voice. I do my African voice. I do my old man voice, my thirsty guy voice, my annoying high-pitched little girl voice. Mimi's videos often straddle the line between mocking stereotypes and perpetuating them. Let me educate y'all on something, okay? We are Vietnamese, we do nails. Koreans sell y'all hair, and we know Chinese. Chinese do y'all curry out, so let's get it right. Okay. Mimi's most popular routine by far is her Vietnamese accent, and she usually crosses it with her take on a certain DC-flavored African-American English. Her followers are a pretty racially diverse group, and Mimi says they can't get enough. But they think it's hilarious how I can switch up. You know, because I'll go from, like, the accent to, I guess, ratchet. <laughs> ratchet is somewhat of a loaded term. It essentially means fabulous and déclassé at the same time. But not everyone online loves Mimi and her voices. Some commenters accuse her of advancing racial stereotypes, not so much of Vietnamese people, but of African Americans, because of that quote-unquote ratchet voice she does. But Mimi calls that criticism hypocritical. You know, I'm able to talk about myself and make jokes and make fun of my own culture because I'm comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with myself. But as soon as I talk about someone else, they will get offended. But people have to realize it's jokes. Laugh at it. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> like, stop being so sensitive because I'm talking about myself, making fun of myself, and people laugh. And I don't think that's fair. It's not the first time that Mimi has encountered disapproval. Growing up, she was a wild child, and she had a rocky relationship with her parents. For the longest, nobody in my family understood me. They thought I was crazy. My parents grew up old school. They're very cultural. When I was 12, I got in a lot of trouble. I spent my teenage life four years in juvie. 
I got out when I was 16. Mimi bounced around from facility to facility, including a group home, a shelter, and a wilderness program for at-risk youth. Her mom got her a job at a nail salon when she was 16. She later graduated from high school in Montgomery County, but she skipped college and had her first child in her late teens. But now, at the wiser age of 25, with a growing following online, Mimi wants to find a platform to help other kids who struggle like she did. I would really love to go to different places, like group homes or any facilities and talk to kids, because I've been through it, and I think they would really listen to me, because I've already been there. So, lovely Mimi, motivational speaker, maybe. I gotta make time, though. I work too much. Sometimes I don't get out of here until, like, 11 at night. In fact, Mimi's pack schedule is a subject she's addressed publicly before. On Instagram, of course. It's Labor Day, and us Vietnamese people always working. Wake up, open, do now, do now, do now. Since Mimi posted hey, that video over the summer, it's fetched more than 13,000 likes. I'm Ali Schweitzer. Want to see some of Mimi's nail designs for yourself or watch her Instagram videos? You'll find both on our website, metroconnection.org. <laughs> Before we say goodbye today, we'll turn the microphone over to you to read from your emails and messages about recent editions of Metro Connection. Our story on the growing number of Metro riders calling it quits with the transit system sparked quite the healthy response. Listener Ray chimed in on our website, metroconnection.org. I've gladly added $800 a month to my rent and moved from Fairfax to Crystal City just so I can now walk to work and avoid that horrendous goofball mistake we call Metro but not everyone is dissatisfied. A listener going by the name Happy DC Resident says, What's the big deal? In nine years of riding Metro to work, yes, there have been a couple of delays and the wait on the weekend can be pretty long. But where is that not the case? Continuing our journey underground, our recent story on the ferns growing in Metro's greats inspired this Facebook comment from Eric Schweitzer, who enjoys the subterranean greenery. With all the plant life down there, riders and operators can all enjoy a little more oxygen during their commute, he writes. And finally, our story about the tax loophole that's motivating real estate developers to ignore vacant homes elicited strong reactions, like this one from listener David. We have no end of investment in the district right now. I think we can afford to be more selective and take the investment from those who want to make improvements to vacant property. Do you have a comment on a story you've heard on the show? Let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org. Find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our free weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages, so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.